With every story we hear, listen to, read, or tell, we make basic human connections that help define who we are. Welcome to Afterwards Paranormal, the podcast devoted to those stories that tell us who we are when we're in the dark. Listen closely now. The dark is speaking, and the need to be heard never dies. Hello and welcome to episode 84 of Afterwards Paranormal. I'm your host, Shelby. On this episode, we present The Phantom of the Limb. Yes, Limb. It is the story of a lost foot that is not lost at all. It knows exactly where it's going and what it wants to do. Our story is One Foot in the Grave by Dave Grubb. Are all removed limbs as willful as the one in our story? Once removed, do they develop an evil agenda? And what exactly is a phantom limb? A phantom limb is a vivid perception that a limb that has been removed or amputated is still present in the body and performing its normal functions. Amputees usually experience sensations including pain in the phantom limb. Studies suggest that between 90 and 98% of amputee patients suffer from phantom limb syndrome right after the amputation or loss of their limb. Removal of parts other than the limbs may also cause phantom sensations. For example, removal of an eye, breast, or tooth. This phantom limb phenomenon is caused by the changes occurring in the cortex of the brain following the loss of a limb. The brain continues to receive signals from the nerve endings that originally supplied signals to and from the missing limb. Simply put, the brain doesn't register that the missing part is missing. Phantom limb syndrome can also be caused by the brain rewiring itself and rearranging sensory information to adjust to the changes in the body. In many patients, the phantom body part is perceived for only a few days or weeks after loss or removal. Others experience phantom pain that persists for years. That sounds totally miserable. Patients suffering from phantom limb pain perceive that the amputated limb is still present and functioning as usual. In many cases, these patients will experience a wide range of sensations in the phantom limb, some of which include a tickling feeling, cramps, a shooting, piercing, or stabbing pain, numbness, cold, warmth, tightness, or itchiness. These symptoms can be mild in some patients. In others, they can be debilitating and interfere with their day-to-day activities. What can be done to help these people? A new therapy has had measurable results. It is called mirror therapy. Mirror therapy uses a mirror to create a reflective illusion of a missing limb to trick the brain into thinking movement has occurred without pain. Mirror therapy also creates visual feedback of a limb movement. During this therapy, the amputee views the intact limb reflected in a mirror while doing movement exercises for about 20 minutes. The reflection tricks the brain into thinking that there are two healthy limbs. Over time, 
the brain encodes this information. The continued sensation of a missing limb has been documented for hundreds of years, although the term phantom limb didn't appear in medical texts until the latter half of the 19th century. It was popularized by Civil War-era doctors like S. Ware Mitchell and French physician Albert Petrus. Until then, the phenomenon was the topic of much superstition. It was generally believed that to prevent phantom limb sensation, it was necessary to bury the severed limb as far away from the patient as possible, preferably with full funeral rites. This led to some rather interesting burials. For instance, one newspaper article from 1909 relates a strange event in Illinois. J. H. McNinch of Rock Falls and James Borges of Maywood, who lost their right arms Saturday morning in a wreck of a northwestern passenger train near West Chicago, implored that the amputated right arms should be properly embalmed and then shipped to the respective family burying grounds of McNinch at Rock Falls and Borges at Maywood. Dr. Isherwood, their physician, familiar with the strange superstition, obeyed the orders of the injured men to the letter, and undertaker C.E. Norris of West Chicago embalmed the two right arms and had them packed in wooden caskets. Wednesday they were shipped with instructions that they be buried with funeral rites. These burials were practiced extensively in America. However, there are several accounts in which limb burials failed to achieve the desired result. In some cases, it even made things worse. One of the strangest stories involving phantom limbs took place in Kansas in 1881 and involved a boy whose arm had been amputated and buried. A singular incident was reported by the Emporia Ledger involving a young man who had recently had his arm amputated while under the influence of chloroform. The arm was amputated and buried some 20 miles from Emporia, where the young man lived. At times, he complained of feeling a pain in the hand of the buried arm on account of the fingers being closed tightly upon the thumb. The arm was exhumed, and the fingers found in a position just as the boy had described. There was more supporting evidence for the boy's strange experience after the hand was straightened out and buried again. All pain ceased, and the boy said he rested better. Evidently, this mysterious connection to amputated limbs was not uncommon and has been well documented. A man whose right leg had been amputated and buried complained of cramps in his left leg. When the leg was exhumed, it was found to be in a bent position. After the exhumed leg was straightened, the man's cramps went away. A farmer who had lost an arm began to complain that he felt small stones between the fingers of his phantom limb. When the arm was exhumed, it was discovered that several small pebbles were lodged between the fingers. An Oklahoma oil man named Anderson Pugh had his leg amputated and soon began feeling cramps in his phantom leg. He implored the church sexton to dig up the leg and straighten it out, which the sexton did. Pugh's pain went away immediately. Another Oklahoman named Elmer Meese lost an arm in a railroad accident and experienced phantom pains in the hand of his severed limb, claiming that the hand was bent doubled. The arm was exhumed, and the hand was indeed doubled, as Meese had claimed. Unfortunately, so much time had elapsed that it was impossible to straighten the hand of the decayed limb, and Meese's phantom pains never went away. 
Similar incidents were reported by several leading physicians of the day, including Professor Petris, who recalled meeting an old sailor who had lost both feet. The old man would sit for half an hour at a time massaging the ends of his shoes where his corns used to be. There's going to be a change in the weather. My corns are hurting me, the old man would declare. On being reminded that he no longer had feet or corns, he would say, Never mind, I feel them all the same. While research into phantom limbs is still taking place, modern science has failed to come up with as many definitive answers as to how or why this phenomenon occurs. Could it be possible, at least in the cases mentioned above, that there is some sort of telepathic connection involved? How else could one explain how an amputee can feel the pebbles between the fingers in his buried hand, or how a boy can perfectly describe the position of a severed arm that was buried 20 miles away? Here's another slightly stomach-turning question, at least for me. Can you keep your amputated limb after surgery? As far as legislation goes, there is no U.S. federal law preventing the ownership of body parts unless they're Native American. The Native American Grace Protection and Repatriation Act makes it illegal to own or trade in Native American remains. Otherwise, a few states restrict owning or selling human body parts. Louisiana, for instance, enacted a ban in 2016 on private ownership of human remains, with some exceptions. Georgia and Missouri have similar laws. The general rule is you have custody of it. You are considered the owner of your body parts as long as they're a part of you. But once taken out, there might be a disagreement about what's going to be done with them. It is uncommon for surgery patients to ask, and most hospitals say no. But in general, those body parts still belong to the patient. Although most amputees do not keep their limbs, some have embalmed them, buried them, or cremated them. Some religions require a body to be whole before burial, and the preserved parts will be reunited with the owner in one grave. Some folks are just nostalgic. For example, a woman named Christy Loyal kept her foot and had it skeletonized. She takes it with her on her travels, snapping pictures for her Instagram, One Foot Wander. I'd like to live out all my dreams And if I could Yes, if I could The nicest one would be with you And you'd be here with me Don't you ever get lonely Get tired 
listening to Afterwards Paranormal, the podcast that offers you dark tales from literature, lore, and you, the listener. If you're interested in contributing stories to the show, please stay tuned after the story for details. Dave, or Davis Alexander Grubb, was born July 23, 1919, and died July 24, 1980. He was an American novelist and short story writer best known for his 1953 novel, The Night of the Hunter, which was adapted as a film in 1955. This film stars Robert Mitchum and is a visually weird treat. It's definitely worth watching. The plot involves a serial killer who poses as a preacher and charms an unsuspecting widow to get his hands on $10,000 in stolen bank loot hidden by her executed husband. Born in Moundsville, West Virginia, Grubb wanted to combine his creative skills as a painter with writing and attended the Carnegie Institute of Technology in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. However, his colorblindness was a handicap he could not overcome and he gave up on painting to dedicate himself to fiction writing. And now, One Foot in the Grave by Dave Grubb. It was all over, and now Henry was lying comfortable and easy between the cool sheets in the room off Doc Sandy's office. It was really amazing. There was scarcely any pain to it at all. As a matter of fact, Henry, staring at the pale yellow ceiling of the bedroom in the doctor's house, actually felt more rested and quiet than he had in years. He smiled. All those months of talking safety to his men in the sawmill, it was ironic. And then it came to him how it happened. His walking through the big pine-fragrant lumber rooms with Ed Smiley, his foreman, his foot suddenly catching in a crack the sudden wild fear as he pitched forward headlong toward the great whirring blade of the ripsaw. Ed's big hands grabbing his shoulder, throwing him, saving his life. And then the numbness in his foot and the sickness, and that was all there was to it until now. Henry lying comfortably and quietly between the sheets. Doc Sandy's face between him and the ceiling now. How's it feeling, Henry? I'm all right. He could hear his voice saying far away, I'm really all right. But you know something, John? It's a funny thing. I can't really understand how it could be. What's that, Henry? My foot, he said. The one that's gone. I can't understand how it could be. It, it itches. And it sounded so ridiculous that he laughed in spite of himself. It not only itches, he said, but it feels cold, especially the big toe. That's not strange, said Doc Sandy. That often happens, Henry. You see, the foot's still there in a way, and in a way it isn't. The part that's still there is in your brain, or in your soul. It's a hard thing to explain. Henry shut his eyes then and began to shake weakly with laughter. What's funny, Henry? I won that bet, John, Henry said. It's a technicality, I admit. But I won it. You can't deny that and he could hear Doc Sandy laughing and cursing and saying, Yes, Henry was right. He had won the bet, and Henry shut his eyes, remembering the night the bet was made, the cold winter night. 
Henry and Doc Sandy playing three cushion billiards in the recreation pool room and drinking beer and talking about death. Doc Sandy had bet Henry he would be under the ground before Henry would, and Henry had bet him that it would be the other way around, and they put their cues down and shook hands on it and agreed that whoever survived was to pay for the other one's funeral. Yes, Henry kept saying, I won. I won by a foot, John, and I intend to see you give that foot the best funeral that money can buy. The doctor's nurse was giving him a drink. The glass straw was between his lips, and the good cool water was soothing to his parched throat. He could hear Doc Sandy lighting up his old pipe, and then he could smell the sweet dry fragrance of the burning tobacco. John, he said. Yes, Henry? John, I keep wondering a funny thing. I keep wondering which which place my foot went to. If it was part of me, so it must be part of my soul. It's a funny thing to wonder, but I just can't help it. I mean, when the rest of me goes over, will my foot be waiting there to join me again? John, it gives you the funniest feeling in the world to think of a foot, a single, solitary foot wandering around eternity waiting. I can't help wondering where it's gone and where it's waiting, in the good place or... Henry shut his eyes and began to laugh again. What's funny, Henry? My foot, Henry laughed. I swear it, John, when I said that a second ago, when I wondered where it had gone, so help me, John, it felt hot. Nobody could have been nicer to Henry than his secretary, Margaret, and his foreman, Ed Smiley, were the next couple of those weeks. Henry stayed on the cot in Doc Sandy's office until he was able to get around on crutches, and there wasn't a single night that Ed and Margaret missed coming to see him, and they almost always brought him something. Ice cream from Beam's Confectionery, or maybe a big spray of sweet shrubs from Judge Bruce's backyard. Margaret was a queer little person in her early thirties, blonde and pretty in a way that nobody ever noticed particularly, living alone in the Bruce's boarding house on Lafayette Avenue, going to the movies every Saturday night with Ed Smiley and then having an ice cream soda with him at Beams. Henry, like most bachelors, often fancied himself quite a matchmaker, and he was fond of reflecting that, had it not been for him, Ed and Margaret would have never met. He was continually asking the girl when she was going to get married, and Margaret, at this, would blush warmly and busy herself in the papers on the desk. Henry never teased Ed about it, knowing, as a man, that Ed had his own good reasons for waiting. But it was something he thought a lot about during these two weeks in bed, and it was a pleasant relief to think about this, nights when his foot would not let him sleep, nights when the plagued, absent thing felt so cold that he could have sworn it wandered alone among the mountains of the moon, nights when the rain hurled itself against the windows of the doctor's house, and Henry, shivering in the warm cot off the doctor's office, could feel the cold, dreadful wet of the March night between his toes. One night he could stand it no longer. It was late, past midnight, and Doc Sandy had gone to bed hours before. Just the same, Henry had to know. He had to talk. He called for a long time before he heard the doctor's slippers whispering down the kitchen stairs. John, he said, I know it's silly. You'll swear I've gone loco or something. Want a sleeping pill, Henry? No, he said. It's not that, John. I swear you'll think I've gone loco. What, Henry? It's just this, Henry said. 
I've got to know for sure. Did you bury it, John? I know it was just a joke at first, and we kidded about the bet and all that, and you said you'd had a little coffin made and buried the fool thing in the back of the sawmill under the puzzle tree. You'll think I'm loco, but I did bury it, Henry, said the doctor. I swear I did. You swear it? I swear it, said the doctor. Look here, Henry, get a grip on yourself. You're going to be up and around in a day or so on crutches for a while. Then we'll get you a foot that'll be as good as new. You'll never miss it. Henry shut his eyes and pressed the back of his head hard into the pillow. His hands were wet with perspiration. It's funny you're saying that, John. It's very funny. What's funny, Henry? That I'll never miss it. It's very funny you're putting it like that. It's what's been going through my head all night, a feeling that somehow it misses me. There wasn't much trick to the crutches after a few days. It was a little hard getting the knack of them at first, but within a week, Henry was getting around almost as easily as before. And within two weeks, he was able to get up and downstairs to his room over the mill office without any help at all. In a month, the wound was healed enough so that Doc Sandy was able to fix him up with an artificial foot. Henry felt a little better about it and began to get his sleep at night now that he knew the doctor had really buried the thing. Then one day, he began to worry again and asked the doctor to take him down back of the sawmill and show him the little grave. You're the damnedest fool I ever did see, Henry, Doc Sandy said laughing, getting upset over a fool joke. Did you put a shoe on it? Henry said, staring solemnly at the little mound under the puzzle tree. Certainly, said the doctor, and a brand new shoe at that, from the pair you bought at Jim Purdy's sale the week before the accident. Never been worn. Is there a sock on it, too? whispered Henry. Damn it all, man. Is there? he said. Yes, cried the doctor. Yes, damn it, there's a sock on it. You didn't put it on straight, Henry said shaking his head a little sorrowfully. You put it on crooked, John. It pinches my toe. That night it began. Night was the time when it always happened. Henry would go to bed, knowing that he was perfectly sane, knowing that the thing could not be true. Yet it was true. It was happening. It was as real as life itself. Sometimes it would be just a pressure on the soul, as if he were standing somewhere, waiting for a train, perhaps. And then it would begin, the gentle pulsing padding, the lift and fall of walking, the easy thud of brick pavement beneath the foot, the soft crush of leaves or grass. And Henry would lie quaking and shaking beneath the quilt and stare with wild sorrow and horror into the shuddering dark. The foot, his foot, apart from him, was walking somewhere, going someplace, living its own life without any help from him. Then he made another discovery that seemed more incredible and awful than any of the rest of it. It was that the foot always seemed to be going the same distance, walking along the same ways, the same street. Henry got so that he could count the number of steps on the brick pavement, and then after a pause, steps soft and yielding beneath the heel, and then another pause and something different again, wooden floor perhaps, then the slower, major climbing of a stairway. One night, after it stopped, Henry sprang from his bed in a frenzy of fear. Snatching his clothes from the back of the chair by his bed, he dressed quickly, lighted the oil lamp, and went out back to the puzzle tree. 
Fetching a shovel from the tool shed behind the sawmill, he began to dig. When the spade scraped on the wooden box, Henry's heart flew to his mouth. Digging, clawing with his hands, panting and perspiring like a man in a fever, he dragged the little box into the lantern light, pried off the lid with the tip of the spade, and stared within. For a moment, he was sure he had lost his mind. He lifted it out and looked closely to be sure. The sole, the sole of the brand new shoe from Jim Purdy's store. He remembered the day he had bought those shoes. He had never worn them. But the sole, it was scuffed and scratched, worn. They were shooting pool that afternoon in the recreation, Henry and Doc Sandy. Henry, said the doctor, chalking his cue stick and squinting low along the cushions for a mass shot. Ed Smiley was in to see me this morning. Ed, said Henry, doesn't look like there's anything wrong with him. He's the perfect picture of health. Doc Sandy shot and missed. It wasn't about himself that he came to see me, Henry. It was about Miss Margaret. You're Margaret. She's not well, Henry. I'll tell you frankly. I prescribed a couple of weeks' vacation. She's run down, nervous. Ed said she didn't want to ask you, and you know Margaret. She'd never ask you. I hadn't noticed her, Henry said. I really never pay attention to her, John. You know how it is. You, you just take somebody like Margaret for granted year after year. Sure, sure, I'll give her two weeks off, a month if she needs it. Thanks for telling me, John. Supper time. Walking home down Lafayette Avenue. Poor little Margaret. Henry felt like a slave driver. Never realized what a drab little world it must have been for her all those years. Day after day in that glum, dingy office, laboring over books in that proper, lace-like little hand of hers, keeping his office neat and dusted. When Henry opened the office door, he heard her. She was crying. Then he saw her, slumped among the papers on the desk, her hands over her face, her shoulders shaking with sobs. Henry stood there wondering what to do, feeling terrible about it. He cleared his throat. Margaret, he said. Margaret. She stood up slowly and turned, facing him. Her face was streaked and wet with tears, plainer and more homely than he'd ever seen her. The face under the washed blonde hair was tired and old. Don't touch me, she whispered. She was shuddering violently and clutching her handkerchief into a tight, wet ball. Don't come near me. Let me alone. Oh, when will you let me alone? Henry felt behind him for a chair and sat down with a thump. I, I don't understand, he began. What do you mean, Margaret, let you alone? What do I mean, she whispered. What do I mean? You ask me that? You dare to ask me that? I, I don't understand, he said. He reached in the pocket of his alpaca coat for a handkerchief to mop the perspiration from his upper lip. She seemed almost crouching, ready to spring on him. Last night, she whispered fiercely, the knuckles of her thin red hands shining white with rage. Last night, the night before last, how many nights? Lying there listening for your footsteps on the pavement, the creaking of the grate, your footsteps on the tan bark walk, then lying there waiting for your footstep on the stairs. Those nights, my God, the things you told me, the things you promised me. You said we'd be married. You said, you said you'd kill me if you ever lost me. You ask me what I mean, those nights, in my room, in my arms? 
She sprang forward and struck him across the face with the flat of her hand. Henry didn't feel the blow. He just sat staring through the girl, beyond her. My, my footsteps, he whispered. She was on the floor now at his feet, covering his hands with kisses. I'm sorry, she wailed. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to do that. Oh, I didn't. Forget I ever said it, dearest. It's just that I couldn't stand it. I couldn't. At first, the first night, I thought it was a dream when I heard your footsteps, and then the door opened and I saw it was you. It was like seeing a ghost. I couldn't believe it. Those nights, they seemed like a dream, unreal, wonderful. My footsteps, he whispered again, rising, pushing her away from him, stepping over her sobbing, shaking shoulders and walking like a sleeper out the door and up the steps to his room. He lay down with his clothes on and stared unseeing at the ceiling, moving over the yellow, guttering light of the gas flame by the bedroom door. A soul within him, a hidden secret other him, a tenant of his heart that the foot claimed as its own and had taken with it to the grave. Margaret, he had never so much as looked at her. He had never seen her. She was a piece of furniture, a desk, a chair, a ledger with a lacy, sorrowful love letter of commerce on its pages. My footsteps, he said aloud to the walls. Footsteps down the pavement of the shady street in the secret moment of the night, footsteps up the tan-bark walk of Bruce's boarding house, footsteps up the stairs, the hesitation, and then the open door. Then he was hearing her flat, tired voice, still and composed now. He turned his head on the pillow. She was standing in the bedroom door, looking at him. She had on a cheap little flowered hat and the coat with the touching curl of dusty fur about the collar. I'm sorry to bother you again, she said. I won't bother you any more. You won't have to bother with me again. The books are in order. I'm leaving town with Ed Smiley tonight. He's going to marry me. Then she was gone. Henry listened to her quick footsteps going down the stairs. The street door slammed and the clock in the town hall struck six times. He lay back, sad, regretful, but at the same time relieved. It was all over now. Perhaps tonight he could sleep. Sleep. That El Dorado of peace that he had long ceased hoping for. Henry shut his eyes. He had stopped trembling. It was dark outside the window, a heavy wine dark of early April. And then in a moment, it began again. Footsteps. The foot. Fast now. Faster than it had ever been. Along the damp pavement of the small town night. Running. The thud was almost painful on his soul. Then a pause. Then the running again, up the springy yielding softness of the tan bark, under the trees bursting with dark greenness in the moonless April night. Up the wooden steps, two, four, six, eight. Henry shut his eyes and clenched his teeth against the scream that struggled in his throat. Ten, twelve, the landing now. Up the hall. His fingers tore through the linen sheet beneath him. The door. The open door. He felt he was fainting. His eyes started from his head. Then it began, not on the sole now, but on the toe, a smashing violent rhythm on the toe of his foot, a remorseless, brutal thudding that made his leg ache to the very hip. Then it stopped. The padding, running thud again, down the steps, through the tan bark, through the dark, 
the mossy pavements of the April night, and then at last, like a benediction, it was still. He lay on the bed for a long while before getting up. Then he went slowly down the stairs, down the path to the shed, down to the puzzle tree with the spade in his shaking fingers. Like a madman he dug, his fingers ached and the nails broke as he clawed the box from the earth, ripped the wooden lid loose and stared at the thing within. He was still standing there at dawn when Doc Sandy and the sheriff came down the path, not moving, just looking at the foot in his hand and the shoe, its toe all dark with something sticky and some wisps of washed blonde hair. thought that was a great story. I wonder, though, if he can be accused of murder because it was his foot, but his foot was no longer part of him. Would they have the foot on the witness stand? Hmm. Sounds like another interesting story waiting to be told. This next weekend, I'm going to one of my favorite places, the Hotel Colorado in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. I plan on doing a little solo ghost hunting, and I will let you know if I get any results. I've had really great luck there, and I'm hoping to have that good luck again. Thank you so much for joining me here on Afterwards Paranormal. I've been your host, Shelby. And as always, I leave the last words for you. Thank you for listening to Afterwards Paranormal Podcast. Please join us on Patreon and Facebook. You can listen to Afterwards Paranormal on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Contact us at afterwardsstories at gmail.com. And remember, the need to be heard never dies. (laughs) 